you will not leave me down in dark Sheol, nor let your Holy One there see corruption. This, beloved, is what we deserve. We deserve dark Sheol, the underworld, hell away from God. This is what the law of God proclaims to us, the curse of lawbreakers, and that is what we all are, should, by all accounts, rest on us. But because of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, his body saw no corruption, but he was raised incorruptible for our sake. Because of that, the law can have another purpose. It draws us close to him, makes us aware of our need for him, and it guides our walk of thankfulness. Let's now read the law this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those who love me, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. This is the law of our God, and he added no more. These are the ten words of the covenant, not eleven, not fifteen, not six hundred and thirteen, but our Savior, he summarized them in two. These ten words into two. Two commandments, one word. Love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love is the summary and the fulfillment of the law, and love is the summary and fulfillment of the gospel. So let us now respond in love for the law of love, with a song of love for the law and God our lawgiver. To me, your servant, you have kindness shown. Lord, you are good, and what you do is good. This morning, we'll sing our selection from Psalm 119 for the month of March. The stanzas 25 through 27 under the Hebrew letter Tate. Please bow with me in prayer for a blessing on this worship service. Heavenly Father, Holy God, we come before you this morning as your people, as those you created to be good, as those you created in your image in true righteousness and holiness. We come before you as wretched sinners, as those who have rebelled against your holy name, as those who have broken your holy law, 
as those who have followed our own heart and served ourselves as though we were gods. And we come before you as your church, as your holy people, saints because of the work of Jesus Christ. We come before you as a people washed clean in the blood, having heard the saving message of the gospel and made it our own through faith. Lord, all of these three designations are true. Our creation, our fall, our redemption. We thank you for staying by our side through it all, for not abandoning us when we sinned, for still not abandoning us when we still sin. We thank you that you have shown kindness to us, your servants, that you have shown mercy, that you have humbled us. Yahweh, you are good and you do what is good. And we come before you asking this morning that you would teach us, that you would guide us by your truth you would bless this time together that we have. We know that you hear us all throughout the week. You are near to us all throughout the week, and yet there is still something special, still something beautiful and wonderful for us today, gathering together as your people under the preaching of your word, gathering together as your people so that we can worship you far better together than we could individually. We ask that you would please bless and accept our worship, poor though it is. All this we pray in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now in connection with our text for this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
Now, over the next several weeks, we will become very well acquainted with this chapter. Our entire sermon series will be confined to these 58 verses, and be sure there's more than enough in here for many sermon series. We'll begin at the beginning, going back to the basics, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15, the first 11 verses. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. After the sermon, we will sing our Amen song of Psalm 124, all three stanzas. May God bless the preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, about a year ago, just short of a year ago, Easter Sunday 2022, I briefly spoke about the lack of excitement that some of us might have when it comes to this particular holiday. At that time, I I compared Easter to Christmas. Christmas comes with so much pageantry, decorations of red and green, stockings, trees, roaring fires, ice skating, tobogganing, some time off school and work to spend time with family. And it's not too hard to take the elements of secular Christmas and use them as examples for the true meaning of Christmas. Some of these might be a stretch, but we can do it. Green can be the new life that we have, red for the blood that was to be shed. Trees, they can point to the wood of the manger, the wood of the cross. Time with family, entrance into the family of God, and of course, gifts, the gift, Jesus Christ, wrapped not in bright paper, but in human flesh. Christmas works. Easter, on the other hand, what do we really have to work with, with secular Easter? We have a rabbit that inexplicably lays eggs, and chocolate eggs at that. Easter is confusing, And it isn't a big deal in the world, and that can affect how we see it in the church. All of this I said last year. I tried to challenge that notion on Easter Sunday. But this year, with the same problem, what we're going to do is we're going to take a bit of a running start. Not just one sermon, but five sermons, an entire series on the vital importance of that first Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And the Apostle Paul, he was equally concerned with the Corinthian church and what they believed about Easter. And so what he did was, in this chapter, he presented them with a hypothetical, a frightening and terrifying hypothetical. You don't seem to care about the resurrection. Some of you are claiming that there is no such thing. Well then, if that's true, if you will not be raised, then not even Christ was raised. So, what then? What if that first Easter never happened. And so, in the season of Lent, looking ahead to the horrible but very good Good Friday and the glorious Easter Sunday, ask the question with me, what's so amazing about Easter? This morning, we'll go back to basics with the gospel, its proof, and its power. What's so amazing about Easter? Back to basics, the gospel. So let's start off fairly easy this morning. Many of us here, not all of us necessarily, but many of us here are believers, have been believers, have been in the church for years, for decades, some of us for our whole lives. So this question shouldn't be that hard. What is the gospel? The gospel is is what I preach week in and week out. 
The gospel is what we should be focused on in catechism classes, in Bible studies. School teachers are to infuse the subjects they teach with the gospel. The evangelism committee is to share the gospel. Deacons are to show gospel love and care. The elders are to explain, teach, and encourage believers in the gospel. So what is it? This week, I I asked this question on social media. I got quite a few answers, and I'm going to share a few of them with you. All of them really good answers. The gospel in three words, hope, peace, and purpose. The gospel is the good news concerning Christ and how he made a way for salvation. The gospel shows that God is the provider of salvation rather than man. The gospel tells you that you are more sinful than you realize and that God loves you more than you realize. The gospel is the good news about deliverance from sin, both temporarily and eternally. The gospel is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king who came and conquered sin and Satan in order that we could be reunited with our Father. All mankind has sinned. Jesus paid the penalty for that sin. All must repent and receive Jesus, the Christ, through faith for salvation. Jesus alone bridged the gap between God and man. Finally, Jesus Christ is king and he has defeated sin and death. Trust in him and you will have eternal life. All of these answers to the question, what is the gospel? Each one of these, a good answer. What is the gospel? It seems like such an easy question. There are many good answers, we just heard some of them, that point to various aspects of the gospel. And so it's hard for us to know exactly what we should focus on. Where do we start when we share the gospel? What information should we include? Because the gospel is at its heart so simple, and yet it is also so full. Do we start with creation? If so, how much detail do we really get into? Do we say, God created and it was good? Do we say, we're made in the image of God? Do we speak of God's power and that everything was created in six days? That might be hard for some to believe right off the bat. Do we follow that model then of of creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Well, the definition of the gospel is something different than how we should share it. They're not the same thing. How we should share the gospel, it should be tailored to each individual person and their previous knowledge. Maybe their culture might come into play. Maybe their individual history with the church. There might be a lot of misconceptions to correct. Maybe a lot of painful history to heal. How we share the gospel differs from person to person and audience to audience. We, we see that all throughout scripture as well. How Paul shares the gospel, how Peter shares the gospel depends on the audience. But the definition of the gospel, the gospel itself, stays the same. And here's a good definition. It's, it's full but not exhaustive. This will be our starting point this morning. It's a bit of a long definition. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, out of mere grace, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over his enemies, so now there is no condemnation for those who believe. But instead, already now, there is a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father, and already now there is eternal life with the promise of eternal everlasting joy which today we already have a foretaste of. That's the gospel. It's pretty full, it's pretty long. If you're trying to take notes, you can talk to me after. I don't think you'll write all of it down. I will say it again for you, though. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, out of mere grace, died for our sins and rose again eternally triumphant over his enemies. So now there is no condemnation for those who believe. But instead, in the place of that condemnation, already now there is a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. Already now there is eternal life with a promise of eternal everlasting joy, which today we already have a foretaste of. That's what the Apostle Paul explains in our text. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if You hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And we'll see what he means by unless you believed in vain in future sermons here. It's not that the gospel was faulty. It's not the problem here. 
Now, you see, the Corinthian church, they were a church divided. There were so many fault lines that were splitting them apart. Just look at this letter. Look at this letter. In chapter 1, if we flip back, I'm not going to read specific ones, but you can just briefly look with me. In chapter 1, we see that there are divisions, that members had clung on to various teachers, various preachers, turning these men into almost cult-like figures. I like Paul. I like his preaching. I will follow Paul to the ends of the earth no matter where he goes. Well, I like Apollos. He's easier to understand than Paul. I refuse to listen to any other preacher. Ah, but what about Cephas? That is, Peter. Wasn't his confession the one that the church was built upon? Peter was one of the twelve. I'll follow Peter. Thank you very much. Then chapter 3. We see that there were certain members of the congregation that had become obsessed with philosophy, with worldly wisdom, and they valued it more than godly wisdom. We heard a bit of that in our reading also in chapter 2. In chapter 4, we see that this has made some members prideful, that they know better than the other members. They know better than Paul. They're trying to free themselves from his authority because he is foolish and they are wise, because the Apostle Paul is weak and they are strong. We see a bit of sarcasm here from Paul. In chapter 5, we see that there is sexual immorality in the church, that a man is sleeping with his stepmother, and not only is this man not under discipline, but he's actually being celebrated for what he's doing. In chapter 6, the church is suing each other. They're bringing in lawsuits against each other in a secular court. In chapter 7, they're confused about marriage. In chapter 8, they're confused about idols. In chapter 9... Paul seems to be defending himself against the accusation that he's improperly using his apostolic authority. And so Paul says, I have it. I have this authority as an apostle, but I will not use it. I will come to you only with the authority of the word of God. In chapter 10, Paul condemns them for their pride and their self-sufficiency. Those who think that standing in their own strength, they will never fall. Chapter 11, they're confused about head coverings. In chapter 12, they seem to be obsessed with these flashy spiritual gifts, despising those who have lesser gifts. In chapter 13, love, which is so absent in this congregation at Corinth. It's given this beautiful exposition and defense as it, to being, the, as, as it being the greatest of spiritual gifts, the best way to use those other spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, they're confused about tongues. This is a church that is so confused. This is a church that is so distracted, so divided, that after addressing their issues, after trying to bring them all together, Paul, it seems, what he's doing is he's stopping himself in his tracks. Saying, yes, it is vitally important that you get these things right. It is important that you don't have the cult of Paul and the cult of Apollos. It's important that you, as the congregation of Jesus Christ, are pure, that you are humble, that you behave properly. But all of these things, they have to flow out of something. These things are the fruit, not the root. So Paul says, let's, let's return. Let's get back to basics here. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If you don't have that right root, if you don't have the root right, any fruit that might be produced, well, it's like polishing silver on the Titanic as the ship is sinking. Let's not focus only on the symptoms here. Paul is a very good doctor. We're not focusing only on the symptoms. We're going to cure the disease. The symptoms are sins, and the disease is sin. Let's get these two straight in our minds. Our sins, plural, they're the fruit of our old nature. Sins are the rotten, poisonous apples coming from a corrupted root. And that root is sin corruption, evil. Sin came into the world, and now we bring forth the fruit of sin. The fruit of sin is sins. And though Jesus' blood covers over our sins, even though what he's doing, if we want an image of it in our minds, what he's doing is he's picking every single rotten, poisonous apple 
and then destroying them in his body on the cross. The gospel also, even primarily what it's doing, is it's attacking the root. Our Lord, we could say, is not only a harvester, he's a lumberjack. He takes all of the fruit, but he also puts an axe to the root so that one day no sinful fruit will be produced. And the Apostle Paul, what he's doing here with the Corinthians is he is imitating Christ. He addressed the fruit, but his main issue, his primary focus is the root. And the gospel is a sharpened axe laid at the root of the tree. Christ is swinging that axe. Paul is swinging that axe. And we too must be swinging, killing sin before it kills us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Essentially, let's take a deep breath. Remember, remember who you are. You, Corinthian church, who are so filled with hatred for your fellow believer, are we not brothers? Have we not been bound in baptism, bound by faith to Christ and also to each other? So what are you doing? How can you treat each other this way? Let's stop with the fighting and remember the gospel. Are you showing the same love that you have received from God? Are you showing the same grace that you have received from God? Are you showing care and concern for those who are struggling? Are you bringing the gospel in your words and your actions? Are you, as we talked about a few weeks ago, are you making the transcendent transparent? If not, why not? Are we not king's men on a mission for the king, a mission of love and mercy? So how dare you do anything else? How dare you do anything other than this as the church? The gospel. The gospel that Paul was determined to preach, come hell or high water, as we heard in our reading earlier in 1 Corinthians, the gospel about which Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel, it's the foundation. The gospel is the frame and the gospel is the crowning glory of the life of the Christian, the life of the church. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You learn from our text, the the first few verses of this chapter, that the gospel is five things. The gospel is five things. It is a divine plan, first of all. Twice, in these two verses that we just read, we see the phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. It wasn't just that something happened. Hundreds of years before it happened, Isaiah spoke about the crucifixion of Christ, the suffering Savior, so clearly. Thousands of years before he came, it was promised that the seed of the woman would destroy the seed of the serpent and that that destruction would come at a great cost. This wasn't a surprise to God, and it shouldn't have been a surprise to God's people. So the gospel was a divine plan. The gospel is also a historical event. Not only was this something that was in the mind of God, not only was it prophesied, but there was a historical man named Jesus who was accused by a historical Sanhedrin, who was condemned by a historical governor, Pontius Pilate. He was nailed to a historical cross, he was placed in a historical tomb, and he historically rose from the dead gospel is something that went from plan to execution in history. It's historical. Also a divine achievement. The gospel is something that God has done. Not only did it happen, but it meant something. It meant something huge. Christ died for our sins. Salvation was achieved in his death and his resurrection. The gospel is a gift of grace gospel, as Paul says in verse 1, is something that the Corinthian church received. Not something that they earned. It's something that they received by faith, not by works. And finally, the gospel is something personal. 
Jesus Christ, he did not come and live and die and rise again for a concept. But Jesus died for the church, for real people, for his people, to bring salvation to these real people, to you and to me, those of us who are suffering, who are struggling with the rotten roots bringing rotten fruit. He plucked that fruit. He laid an axe at the root of the tree, and he did all of this for you. This, beloved, is the gospel. So simple, so foundational, and yet so rich, so wonderful. Something to marvel at every day of the week and twice on Sundays. It is a powerful, wonderful, life-changing story. The story can change the world, and it has. We here today, are proof of it. But a story can be true or false. So why should we believe any of this? It's our second point. Have you ever given any thought as to why we believe the Bible? What is different about this book than any other book? Have you ever given thought as to why we allow a story of what happened 2,000 years ago to dictate everything about our lives? After all, we, we saw in our first point that the gospel depends on being historical. A historical man, accused by historical men, condemned by a historical man, nailed to a historical cross, buried in a historical tomb. This is a fictional story. If any one of these is found to be fictional and not historical, and we've devoted our lives to a lie. So what can we point to? Why do we believe? Well, the fact that your parents believed, that doesn't necessarily make it true, does it? Your parents may have also believed that the cold gives you a cold. They may have believed that, that carrots improved your eyesight. They may believe that over time, over our lifetimes, we'll swallow eight spiders while we sleep. None of these three are true. So what then about the Bible. The Bible says that it's true, but so does the Quran, so does the Book of Mormon. What is the proof that Christianity is true? That Christianity is the one true religion and that Yahweh is the one true God? The Apostle Paul, in our text, he, he gives us two proofs here. He gives us the proof of prophecy. We've already briefly touched on that. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So what exactly are these scriptures? What, what are the prophecies that are there that Jesus Christ would die for our sins? Let's briefly examine a few of many, many prophecies, and we'll start at the beginning. Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, you will strike his heel. To defeat Satan and the sin that he brought into the world, the Messiah had to die. Exodus 12 speaks of being saved by the shedding of blood. The Passover lamb was a picture of the lamb of God, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. That we will, Lord willing, celebrate next week in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's blood was shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. In Deuteronomy 21, we read that one who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. Death and the curse together, punishments for sin, laid on the one who is hanged on the tree of the cross. Psalm 22 speaks of the rejection of God, of the mocking, of the piercing of hands and feet, of the dividing of clothing by casting lots. One of the clearest pictures of what would happen to our Savior in his death for the salvation of his people. Psalm 69 speaks of the drink that Christ would receive on the cross. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Isaiah 53, the suffering servants. Again, what we'll hear preached next week, Lord willing. A righteous servant of God who would sprinkle many nations with his blood. Who would bear our griefs. Who would carry our sorrows. Our iniquities were laid on him. His soul made an offering for guilt. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In Zechariah 12, grace and mercy will come when they look on the one whom they have pierced. All of these prophecies. Now one of you might say, well, of course the Bible supports the Bible. The Quran also supports the Quran too. This, this actually proves nothing at all. 
you'd be right, except for the fact that the Jews, the Jewish people who firmly rejected Jesus as the Christ, they believe in every single one of these prophecies that I just said. These prophecies, they weren't written after Jesus came as a way to pretend that he was always promised as Christian propaganda. No, the Jews who reject Jesus hold on to these prophecies. The Muslims who reject Jesus Christ as Savior, as well as much of the Old Testament, they still do believe in the first five books, including the prophecies of Christ found therein. These prophecies, they came thousands of years before Jesus Christ, and they are believed in by those who reject Christ. These are not Christian prophecies, so to speak, fulfilled by Christ, believed to be prophecies by so many. Jesus, coming into this world as a Messiah who would suffer and die to save God's people, was prophesied thousands of years before he ever came. Prophesied in such detail that skeptics, without any proof whatsoever, actually it's stronger than that, despite the proof that they have to the contrary, they insist they must be fake, they must be written way after the fact. But our text gives us another proof as well. If the proof of prophecy isn't enough, we also have the proof of eyewitnesses. Starting at verse 5. And that he appeared, that's he is Christ, to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, if you would go to a jail right now and you would ask anyone behind bars if they had one or two or five eyewitnesses who placed them away from the scene of the crime, if you would ask them, if you had that, would you still be in prison? They'd probably laugh in your face. If you have eyewitnesses that place you somewhere else, if you have enough of them, if their story is believable enough and consistent enough, you will not go to jail. That is proof that what you say is true. It's proof that your innocence is true. That's just a few eyewitnesses. What about 500? And again, one of you might say, well, of course the Bible says that. That could just easily be a lie. Here's where that argument falls apart. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. He says, many of whom are, most of whom are still alive. Paul is telling the Corinthians, go check out my story. Ask the people who were there Ask those who saw his death. Ask those who saw his tomb. Ask those who saw him resurrected. Check out my story. Examine it. You will see that it's true. All of it. For us today, we we can have confidence, not because these eyewitnesses are still alive for us to talk to, but because the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents, better attested to than any other historical book. More on that shortly written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. These eyewitnesses, the apostles, the disciples, they were all persecuted and killed for their faith, and they refused to recant. Christianity, it's it's not the only religion where there have been martyrs, people killed for what they believe, but it is the only religion where the founders were all arrested, tortured, and killed, and that they would have been released if they simply admitted they made it all up. What could these men possibly have to gain when faced with death? Absolutely nothing. Who would be willing to die for a lie? They were willing to die because they knew that the gospel was true. They saw it. They lived it. They were willing to die because they had seen it with their own eyes that the Lord had conquered death. So they were confident that they too would conquer death. If this life was all that there was, if the apostles, if they made it up for the money, the power, and the fame, then they did a very bad job. They were poor and hated. They were all killed within the first 20 or 30 years. They did a very bad job if they were in it for themselves. And then, finally, this book that we have in front of us is the most well-attested to historical account that has ever been written. Ask these questions of other historical accounts. How do we know of the victories of the Emperor Hannibal? One author with three manuscripts, two of which disappeared over a thousand years ago, and the one that we have left is incomplete. 
That's all we have. How do we know that the man Socrates, the philosopher, ever existed? We have no manuscripts of anything he wrote. He's only alluded to a few times in the few manuscripts of Plato that we do have. All that we know of Julius Caesar, 10 manuscripts. But Holy Scripture, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of documents between 10,000 and 24,000 ancient manuscripts, depending on who you ask and how you count the manuscripts. So any historian worth his salt who also believes in these other historical figures, details of conquests, teachings of Socrates, Plato, the reign of Julius Caesar, they must also, if they're being consistent, believe in Jesus Christ. The evidence against him would be so simple. It would be so simple to disprove Christianity. So simple. For the Jews and for the Romans, all you have to do is produce a body. That's all you have to do. The disciples stole the body. That was their story. Okay, so find the body. There were only 11 of them. Not a single one of them was any kind of expert at hiding anything, at fighting, at deceiving anybody. Each one of them was scared and frightened. The Jews, they had the full force of the Sanhedrin. The Romans had legions at their disposal to put down this new religion that was causing so much trouble. Just produce a body and it will all go away. But no body was ever found. Now, it's it's true, beloved. I, I realize that you cannot logic anyone into believing. We heard that in our reading, right? That the spiritual things are to be discerned by spiritual people The natural man cannot understand them. It requires faith. It requires the working of the Holy Spirit in the heart. But what these proofs can do is that they can remove a stumbling block that people might have. People who say, it's just a story. It's just a story. There's absolutely no proof you are believing in nonsense. You say, no, there there is proof. Christianity is a reasonable religion. It's all by faith, but it's not a blind faith. It's not an ignorant faith. It's an informed faith. We have an informed faith and a powerful faith. That's our final point this morning. Now, the gospel was not only something that Paul thought would be good for the Corinthian church. It's not only the solution for their sins, not only the cure for their sin. The gospel was something that Paul personally knew was true. He knew it intellectually, but it was also something that he knew uh, had drastically, dramatically, and powerfully changed his life. We read that in verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The apostle Paul, he had his life turned upside down by the gospel. He knew full well the power of the gospel. Because as corrupt, as sinful, as divided as the Corinthian church was, Paul had been worse. Paul had done worse things. Paul had been more evil than any of them. He had done worse things than they could ever imagine, and he never forgot. When he closed his eyes at night, do you think that he heard the screams of the men, the women, and the children that he persecuted, that he murdered? I'm sure that he did. That's not the only thing that he heard in the dark of the night. That wasn't the only thing that he heard or that he saw. Not only did he hear and see his sins, but he heard and saw his Savior. Because that's what the gospel is. One of those many definitions that I received this week, remember, you are more sinful than you realize. And God loves you more than you realize. It's the gospel. This is its power. And it came to Paul as to one untimely born. An interesting phrase. Why why was Paul untimely born? 
It's because the gospel came to him not as one of the followers of Jesus, but the opposite. It came to him as a persecutor. Paul was a man born in battle, we could say. Instead of the gradual softening of the heart through hearing the gospel, instead of slowly, day after day, moving closer and closer to that moment when you have true faith, slowly coming to faith, being taught by parents and teachers and preachers, it was instantaneous. He had a heart as hard as stone, and then boom, Jesus appears and confronts Paul. And poof, a soft heart in the place of a stone heart. A heart filled with love and grace and joy for the gospel. Paul, more than any of the other apostles, he lived with his sense of unworthiness. The least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. He lived with that unworthiness. What that did was that it made Paul the best example of grace and the best teacher of grace. What did Paul write? Again and again in all of his letters, it's not about us. It's not about how hard we work. It's not about how righteous we are. It's not about us choosing God. It's not about anything else other than Jesus Christ. Look at Paul. He was the perfect example of works righteousness. He lived as a Pharisee among Pharisees. He studied under the strictest teachers. His zeal for religion was unmatched, and he proved it by going from house to house, arresting and killing those he determined to be heretics. He was filled with what he considered to be a righteous anger, motivated by fury, a passionate wild man. But then God entered his life, and so did grace. And that passion, that motivation was turned, it was changed, it was powerfully bent. Apostle Paul was the poster child for the power of the gospel. He recognizes this about himself in 1 Timothy 1, what we heard in our call to worship this morning. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. What this means is that God saved Paul for your sake. God saved Paul for my sake, for the sake of the Corinthian church, so that we would see God's overflowing grace, so that we could all marvel over his divine mercy, over his perfect patience. God's purpose in saving Paul was to show that there is nothing that we can do, no sin too horrible, no path too dark that could separate us from God's saving love. Paul's testimony strikes a powerful chord in our hearts because that's exactly what God intends it to do. The power of the gospel in the life of Paul, the power of the gospel in the life of the Corinthian church, His power throughout history to restrain wickedness, to transform hearts and lives, kings and countries, emperors and empires. The gospel has the power to bring hope and joy in the midst of darkness and gloom. The gospel has the power to bring life in the midst of death. The gospel is simply this, that our Lord lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. He rose victoriously from the grave to bring his people back to himself. It's all grace, it's all love, and it's all him. Amen. In our congregational prayer this morning, we'll lift up those who have lost a loved one this past week, the families of Fenny Cobus and John Vanderpool. I understand also that John was a previous member here in Cloverdale. We'll give thanks that we have the comfort that this sister and this brother were promoted to glory as they believed in and loved their Savior, Jesus Christ. We also pray that more and more, each of our lives may become cruciform, that is, shaped by the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Be pleased to save me, God, I pray. I am poor and weak as ever. Come quickly, God, and rescue me, for you alone can set me free. Heavenly Father, as we take these words of the psalmist on our lips, We give you thanks that you answered his call. You responded to his cry in Jesus Christ. You saved him. You strengthened him. You set him free. 
And you did the same for each one of us. We no longer have to request this. Yet, in another way, we, we still do. This is still our cry. Because even though the war has been won, there is a battle that still rages. A battle in our hearts. Satan has been defeated, but he isn't dead yet. We have been justified. We are being sanctified, but we are not glorified yet. We still struggle against our sins. We still see the root of sin that affects everything. And so we mourn. We mourn the results of sin shown in the death of Fenny Cobus and John Vanderpoel this past week. Lord, these two believers, one in her 90s, the other in his 70s, as much as we can say that 91 years is a long life, it is an eternal life. As much as being in your 70s might seem old to some of us, it isn't eternal life. Lord, death is an invader. Death is something evil, wicked, and corrupt. We thank you for softening it. Thank you for transforming it into an entranceway into eternal life. But we long for death itself to die. We long for the day when there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Lord, we ask that you would bring about that day quickly. And while we wait, while we mourn, Lord, please give strength to those who are left behind. Give strength and comfort to Case and Rosalie Beesbrook, to Hank and Deanie Wendt, to Bill Youngs, to Roger and Kathy Keeneker, to Wendy, Mark, and Caitlin Mostert as they mourn the loss of Fenny. Give strength and comfort also to Sieb and Grace DeYoung, to Julia and Shane Hoekstra as they mourn the loss of John. And in our times of joy, in our times of mourning, Lord, we ask that our lives as this congregation would be made more and more cruciform each day. That we would be shaped by the cross of Christ. That we would not hear the gospel and walk away unmoved, but that we would marvel every day over the grace and love that you have shown. That we would be filled with your Holy Spirit and begin to show a small picture of that grace and love to those we meet. Lord, please continue to kill our sinful nature And give us the strength to kill it with you. Each day, let our spiritual nature come to life more and more. And our sinful nature die more and more until you return and make everything new. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.